atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm actually Jason Chaffetz filling in for Brian. Say, so take a little R&R, a little rest and relaxation, which is so unusual for Brian Kilmeade. He's like the hardest working guy out there. He's always, you know, between doing Fox and Friends and the radio show and everything else he does and writing the books. Uh, but I'm honored to, to fill in for him. I'm a Fox News contributor, former member of Congress. And I actually have one of my former colleagues who's going to join us on the line now. Sean Duffy, the former congressman from Wisconsin, he's uh, working with Fox Business now. He's uh, the co-host of The Bottom Line on Fox Business. Sean Duffy, sorry to wake you up so early, but thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Jason Chaffetz. Uh, good to be with you as well. You need to just kind of take over the studio. Brian's out and Jason's in. I love it. Um, and again, we get to work together at Fox. We were together in Congress and we can't get away from each other. We just keep working together and I love it. Well, that, you know, there's a lot of downside to, to being in Congress. Uh, it's a tremendous honor to serve, but you do get to meet some people along the way that you really enjoy and that you'll be friends with the rest of your lives. And, uh, and, and you're one of those guys that's just perpetually happy and positive and, uh, really enjoyed hanging out with you and, and and you know, uh, obviously your wife Rachel as well, Jason. I've never I was always a dour, sad human being until I met you in Congress. And I'm like that is the way a man should live his life: is be happy <laughs> with a with a sunny disposition, like uh, Jason Chaffetz. But you mentioned listen, you mentioned Congress right now, and it's I think it's fascinating. Um, I've had a chance recently to talk to some of our former colleagues, and um, you know, they used to, I don't know when you ran, there was a lot of conversation about all these old members in Congress and how we need to, um, you know, get new blood in there. Well, it's, it's a lot of people have retired over the course of the last 10 years and almost half the conference has been there less than five years. They're all really new, but they have no, they have no institutional knowledge of how it's supposed to work and how you get things done. Then with this slim majority, you see this, they're having real problems. They make a, they, they, they give Ken, paying speeches at home, then they go to Washington, and because they can't figure out how to work together as a party, you know, we're still, our budget for the most part is what Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Mitch McConnell put together right before Kevin McCarthy became the speaker, what, a a little over a year ago, and that's, we're still funding the government at those levels, and and they ran on trying to fix the the budget and the spending, and they they can't even get that done. And it's, I think it's gonna be really frustrating for a lot of members who who want to make a difference in the country but don't seem to be able to. Because well, to, to have a majority of just what you know to only be able to lose two votes along the way is is I I mean, it's just so untenable in order to get from here to there. But uh, you know I I want to talk a little bit about twenty twenty four. I mean obviously we're right in the thick of thick of it. They got primaries. We had this primary coming up. Uh, a really important, important one uh, here on Saturday in South Carolina. Now, uh, I don't know where you are on this, on this, but uh, I, I, I truly believe that this is Nikki Haley's, uh, the ambassador, the former governor of the state of South Carolina. If she doesn't win here, I, I you know, what's the justification for continuing on? I want to play this little clip from a former colleague of ours, somebody who served in the House, who's now the senator 
from South Carolina. He was on Hannity last night. Go to Cut 11, and Sean, I want you to react out of this. Well, I hope that she's dropping out the race, to be honest with you. Here's what we know. She can't win her home, own home state. There's no other state in the nation. If you can't win your home state, there's no other place to win. She's down by at least 25 to 30 points here in South Carolina. The best thing she can do for the nation is to drop out the race, endorse Donald Trump, and let us start focusing on Joe Biden. Your thoughts, John? Well, so that, that's powerful. And just to give a little background, uh, it was Nikki Haley when she was the governor of South Carolina, and Tim Scott was in the House with us as a U.S. congressman. Uh, their, their senator left from South Carolina, and it was Nikki Haley who actually elevated Tim Scott to be a senator from South yeah. Carolina. They have a long relationship, and, and Tim Scott owes a lot to her. And when he says, listen, it's time for Nikki Haley to get out, she can't win, uh, I don't think that comes lightly. That, that, that has to come from a lot of reflection when you want to say those words, especially on Hannity. Um, it's, so I, I don't know what she's doing, Jason. Um, at some point, you, you, you do have a little bit of um, uh, honor, hopefully left. You, 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 you don't want to be embarrassed. But she keeps going on. Again, she's the, the, the most recent polling I've seen, and she's down by 30 points. So is she staying in because she thinks that the Republican Party is going to miraculously change its base and move towards a more neocon George Bush candidate like her? Is she, does she think she's going to win those voters back by staying in against Trump when she runs in 2028? Is she trying to get corporate boards? I don't know what the strategy is here. She has the money to stay in the race. But the long-term play politically doesn't make sense unless there's an afterlife that she's looking at, you know, in, in business or in corporate America. And, uh, again, I can't figure it out because usually you look at the numbers and you're like, listen, it's hard. It's, it's tough for me. I've run hard. I don't like Donald She would say I don't like Donald Trump and where he wants to take the country. But I have to recognize the voters are expressing their will, and it's not for me. Get yeah. out. So I, I, what do you think? I mean – does she, I think she's going to stay in after she's going to get crushed in her home state of South Carolina. And I think she's going to stay in. I mean, what do you think? Um, I think she should have gotten out uh, before. I think when Donald Trump took 98 out of 99 counties in Iowa, uh, that was pretty devastating. And the one county he lost, he lost by literally one vote to Nikki Haley in one county. Um, I, I think she should have dropped out then. It depends what your long-term game is. I think she's taken – so much money from so many people who are saying, no, we want an anti-Trump candidate. That's you. That's why we gave you all this money. You got to stay in and keep making his life difficult. I don't think life is difficult for Donald Trump with Nikki Haley in the race. I, I it's, it's not having much of an effect, if any. Um, and, but again, like I look at Ron DeSantis and, you know, he had all the promise in the world. He was doing exceptionally well. But I thought the way he exited the stage was was pitch perfect in terms of where he's trying to go. Because in the best case scenario, if Donald Trump does win another term, he's only there for four years. And so the moment he gets sworn in, all the talk will be about the, the election in 28. And Ron DeSantis is probably as positioned as well as anybody having gone, you know, exited the stage gracefully and made made a good pitch. He basically said, look, hey, I'm the I am the Donald Trump candidate in terms of policies, but I don't come with all the baggage and all the drama. And so, you know, what's Nikki Haley going to do? I think the longer she stays in, the more she harms herself if she wanted to run again. 
I think that's really good. I, I think that Ron, Ron DeSantis is the front runner no matter what in 2028 because of, because of how he's been a governor in Florida, yeah. how, the, how the country has looked at how he's governed in Florida and how he exited the race. Yeah, he was tough on Trump. But listen, if you're going to run a, in a primary against Donald Trump, you're going to have to be tough on him. And Ron DeSantis was, but he he did exit gracefully. He hasn't been on the campaign with Donald Trump, but he did endorse Donald Trump. But you know, Nikki Haley, um, it's almost a, a Liz Cheney strategy, right? It's like I'm going scorched earth against Donald Trump. It has almost become personal, where she's you know she's trying to flame through him with the same talking points that the Democrats use, which has created a unique situation. Nikki Haley is the most popular. Democrat in the race in South Carolina. They love her. Yeah, <laughs> that's, 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 like that's the problem. That's the problem. All right, real quickly, I want to get your thoughts on uh, the new shoe line from Donald Trump, but let's listen to him talking about it. It's sneaker con in Pennsylvania, cut 15. I just want to tell you, you know, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I have some incredible people that work with me on things, and they came up with this, and this is something I've been talking about for 12 years 13 years and i think it's going to be a big success your influences have been very positive they've been real influences and they love it and they love what we've done that's the real deal and we're going to remember the young people and we're going to remember sneaker con you know that we're going to remember the young people the young people especially that wear sneakers right I mean, from out of nowhere, all of a sudden, the president is pitching sneakers, and they sell out in a moment's notice. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, this is the trouble with radio. I would love if we were on on a Zoom or a podcast or a TV where I could actually see your gold sneakers, your Trump sneakers that you're wearing. I couldn't right get now. any. I would have gotten them, but I couldn't. I, not, I'd take out a loan to go get them, but, you know, they're kind of pricey, but. I think we're there. I think they're a thousand bucks a pair or something. Uh, but you know what? This, this is what's so unique about Donald Trump. I mean, he's going to the UFC fights, but he's going to sneaker con, and he's touching people. I mean, I would. I didn't know. I didn't know there was a such thing as a sneaker con. I don't know if you knew that. Um, no. But all all these people go and they love their sneaker con, and lo and behold, Donald Trump shows up, and. People who may not have had a preconceived notion of Donald Trump before SneakerCon that went there, they're like, I actually like this guy, and he likes sneakers too. I'm going to give him a look, and I might actually go vote in November of this year. Really smart politics touching people where, where they sit. You know, this is the magic of Donald Trump, right? He's this billionaire, highly successful New Yorker, grew up in New York. But he's able to touch and connect with with blue-collar people, uh, uh, voters, uh, low-propensity voters, probably. I'm just guessing who shows up at SneakerCon. But, you know, if you're at SneakerCon, you probably also have a little bit of money because, you know, these sneakers aren't cheap. And I, I, he's just touching a demographic that Joe Biden – I mean, I just always put it in the filter of, could Joe Biden pull this off? I mean, what would happen if he showed up? <laughs> I don't think anyone would come to the, to, to the event. No one wants to buy it. A Joe Biden speaker, a, a sneaker, or a Joe Biden policy. They actually don't want to buy a Joe Biden presidency right now. Um, but you know, Donald Trump has the, the the pulse on America. For some reason, again, you, it's a really good point. He's a billionaire from New York, has not lived a life like any of us. 
right? Um, he's, he, he lived in a different world, but understands where the average men and women are, which has been the, the key to his success. You probably saw this in Utah. Um, I would go to, to in 16, I was, I was still in Congress, and I would go to these rallies that because Trump, Wisconsin was a, was a swing state. I go to these rallies, and I'm like, I have never seen any of these people anywhere yeah. in Republican yeah. politics in our state. They came out of the woodwork to come out and they weren't Republicans, they were Donald Trump supporters and they yeah. loved him. And which was the magic of this, you know, this this movement that he's built across the country of of telling people and actually doing it when he was president, I'm saying, I'm gonna fight for you. I'm gonna be your president. Yes, fantastic. And see, now he's at sneaker con. You can't write this you can't write this in a book. <laughs> Sean Duffy, uh, he's the host of the bottom line. This is on at six PM Eastern on Fox Business with Dagan McDowell. It is a great program. Get a chance, check it out. And uh, Sean Duffy, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Jason Chaffetz, thanks for me share a cup of morning coffee with you and Rachel this morning, who's sitting right beside me as we're talking to you. you Thank you. you. Enjoy the enjoy the three hours of radio. Very good. Thanks again. Uh, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Look, I, I think the progressives in the party want to hold on to as much power as they possibly can. I think this election will really be decided by suburban swing voters. And the math of swing voters is that if the election's 5-5, one swing voter makes it 6-4. It takes two people staying home to overcome that swing vote. I think the left coming out against Biden is a gift because the left ultimately is going to vote for Biden. They're not going to vote for Trump. They're going to come out because they don't like Trump so much. And to the extent they throw an uncommitted, you know, softball at him, all they do is communicate. If he if the left is unhappy with him, maybe he's moving moderate. And that's what he needs to do to win this election. That is uh, Mark Penn, who was, uh, you know, he's a former senior advisor to the Clintons, but he was on Hannity, uh, really insightful in terms of how elections work. It really is, I think, that's uh, sort of the middle 5% of the electorate that will sway an election one direction or another. And But it's really interesting now because... Um, you know, all the talk about the cognitive capabilities of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and her inability to communicate herself and, and how dismal her numbers are. She really hasn't done anything. Um, I don't think she can point to anything in her portfolio uh, that she's actually done, even though she makes these pronouncements that, hey, I'm ready to do it. Um, so the So the Democrats are really in a conundrum. And then you have people on the far left who are making a concerted effort not to vote for Joe Biden and in some cases saying, just stay home. Just if you do show up, vote uncommitted. Listen to Representative Rashid Tlaib in in uh, Michigan uh, this past Saturday, cut 17. It is also important to create a voting block, something that is a bullhorn to say enough is enough. We don't want a country that supports wars and bombs and destruction. Right now, we feel completely neglected and just unseen by our government. If you want us to be louder, then come here and vote uncommitted. Wow, vote uncommitted. I think uh, Joe Biden is really in trouble in Michigan. If you look at all the swing states out there, the case I'd make is uh, that, that there's real trouble is 
And I think Donald Trump sees it, too. Remember, Donald Trump was uh, just there over the weekend is in Michigan as well. But you also have the union problems. You have the uh, auto workers and whatnot. Well, they'll, they'll certainly go out, and they've endorsed and have endorsed and will endorse uh, Joe Biden. The rank and file, I don't think they're with them. I think they understand that Joe Biden has actually taken the party um, – you know, remember, they wanted to get rid of all the combustion engines. They wanted to get rid of all of these automobiles that these people have been producing and do so with a, uh, you know, a green, a green New Deal and a push for electric vehicles, which cost them their very jobs. Now, you can talk about retraining all you want, but I don't think that's going to inure to your benefit in terms of, hey, how is it that we're going to, you know, grow the base and, I, I just think those auto workers in and all the think of all the subsidiary companies and all the the suppliers and whatnot they're looking at that as well and they're saying hey we can't do this and you combine that with the fact that Joe Biden just doesn't have much energy and enthusiasm there's just not listen to Charlemagne the God he was on ABC this week um, and he's talking about Joe Biden and this is one of the most influential people. Uh, out there uh, in radio, particularly with with certain segments of our community. Go to Cut 22. He has no main character energy at all. None. And what is that? Is that age? Is it the way he is? I mean, why, why do you, what, what's the problem? I don't think it has anything to do with, 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 with age. You know, I think it has just everything to do with, with him. I mean, it, it, to say, look, it's not age. It just has to do with, with him. That, that was an interview with... Uh, uh, Jonathan Carl on ABC, and and this is the core problem. You hear Democrats saying, "Hey, we need more, more Joe Biden, more cowbell." But you know, the guy just doesn't have the energy. It's kind of slow Joe. That's that's the fro- fundamental problem, and he doesn't have this reputation of working hard. I mean, he's headed to California today to do what? Go raise some money. But in terms of addressing the key issues that people are most concerned about. No, it's just not there for him. So I think Joe Biden's got a lot of problems, and I think one of the biggest problems in one of the biggest swing states is in the state of Michigan, where people are actively saying, if you show up, just vote present. Don't need to vote for Joe. That's going to really hurt him. I'm Jason Chaffin. Stay with us. More to come on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Watch me. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian and uh, thrilled to do so. Always fun. There's so much happening in the world today. And uh, I hope you had a, had a good holiday weekend. I hope some of you took some days off. A lot of people were working, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I want to get into a new, a different topic than we've been to so far and that is talk about immigration and all the problems and challenges there and a couple other things so uh we're thrilled to have a good friend uh lieutenant colonel alan west congressman west and i served together in the united states congress he's uh he's currently the executive director of the american constitutional rights union uh we served in congress together he's a good friend colonel alan west hey jason how you doing Thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Really do appreciate it. My pleasure, and it's good to hear your voice, my friend. 
Always good. So uh, when you hear about the latest uh, revelations about what's happening and not happening at the border, what's your top line uh, take on what's going down? Well, the bottom line, Jason, we should be very concerned because we are watching the undermining of our national sovereignty. We are watching the complete uh, disregard of the constitutional duty and responsibility of the federal government to protect every state from invasion. And when you're looking at 8 to 9 to 10 million people that we know about and then another 1.5 to 2 million that we don't know anything about entering into this country – This is aiding and abetting drug, human sex trafficking, and now we know uh, terrorism trafficking because there are cells that have come across that we are not able to track, and even the FBI director has uh, alluded to that as well. So this is a very concerning time for the United States of America. No, it is, and uh, one of that was highlighted by Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. He was on Hannity Uh, Listen to his take on the threat of the Chinese nationals crossing the border. Cut eight. Well, you know, it used to be 30 years ago, or really just for the last 30 years in total, that uh, Wall Street and the liberals and the multinational corporations would send our jobs overseas to China. Now they're actually letting the Chinese nationals come here to the United States and take the jobs right out from under our noses. I mean, you talk about 20,000 Chinese nationals just since October coming into this country, taking jobs, driving down wages. Of course, China's already buying farmland, U.S. farmland, at a record pace, Kaylee. I mean, it's, this is unbelievable. And clearly it shows that the border is completely open. Joe Biden wants it open. And for American workers, that is a disaster. Yeah, it, it, not only is it a national security threat, he's right about the working component here. Uh, and taking the jobs, but at bottom line, we flat out don't know who these people are. No, we don't. And when you consider the fact that you also have a good amount of single military-aged males that are Chinese nationals coming to the United States of America, and I just got to tell you, I don't think Xi Jinping would be allowing tens of thousands of single military-aged males or Chinese nationals, period, to be able to depart from China. And we're not talking about something that's very cheap. I mean, they're not getting in a rowboat and rowing across the Pacific Ocean. I I mean, it takes you Thirty to forty thousand dollars to pay your way to the cartels to get uh, you into the United States of America. So these are folks that are coming across multiple countries on aircraft. Then they're making the trek up uh, from Panama through the Darien Gap. So this is not about people that are seeking asylum. This is about people that I believe have some nefarious reasons for them coming to the United States of America. And you also, uh, we got to remember these Chinese police stations that we have here in the United States. America that are keeping an eye on, you know, Chinese expatriate dissidents that live here in the United States of America. Yeah, no, that 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 story people aren't familiar with. They really need to learn more about it. Uh, Laura Ingram on the Ingram angle, she had this uh, she had some she did a really good job. She had these undecided South Carolina voters uh, on her show and they got a chance to weigh in on their concerns. Let's go to cut five. This is Matt Goins um, talking about, well, let's just listen. The wall has not been completed. We've got to get that done. But I've also never met an American who would open the door and let someone in their house if you don't know who's coming in or who's on your front doorstep. I mean, that is the basic principle, right? I mean, we legally and lawfully bring about a million people into our country every year. And on top of that, we have all these 
But you know what, Colonel West, you know what just drives me nuts is that this is a choice. This is a choice by, yeah. by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to open the door and mm-hmm. let this stream of people mm-hmm. every day come in. And, I, you know, I talked to Brandon Judd, who's the, the Border Patrol Council president, and he said, you know, we're just yeah. the welcome committee. We're not allowed to even do our jobs. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and that has to be frustrating. I've been down to the border about 15, 16 times here in Texas, and it is very frustrating for those Border Patrol agents. And it's even more so frustrating for some of these uh, sheriff departments that are there in these counties along the border. They're not equipped to handle what is happening and going on. You talk to Brad Coe down in Kenny County. He's right there in between Eagle Pass and Del Rio. He's, he's being overrun. But the thing that is you know, so interesting, and like you said, this is willful, it is intentional, it is purposeful, and to what purpose? And and I love how people try to change the language. I mean, this is illegal immigration, illegal aliens, and now we everyone wants to say they're just migrants. No, that's, that's not the case. They're trying to soften the language to make it more acceptable. And then you look at these policies and programs that they have in Massachusetts and now in Michigan saying, well, why don't you just take some of these illegal immigrants into your home and let them stay there? Uh, uh, no, I mean, I have some relatives that I don't want to come stay in my house. I'm definitely not going to have people that I don't know who they are, and we don't know who they are. They don't have any identification, but yet we're allowing them to fly on our airplanes. We're allowing them to get on buses, and now we're saying that the American people need to have them in their homes. This is incredibly upside down. All right, let me totally switch gears here with you. I want to talk about Israel and Iran and get your perspective. You, you have military experience mm-hmm. and background. Uh, would I, you know the bigger concern for me is I think one of the biggest threats in the world is Iran with a nuclear weapon, and the Biden yeah. administration and certainly the Obama administration has done everything they can to enrich and empower Iran. And I, I, I think that's one of the greatest threats to, to the world today. No, you're absolutely right. And when you think about the Obama administration and the Biden administration, they upset the balance uh, over there in the Middle East with Barack Obama welcoming Iran, welcoming the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, the Iranian nuclear agreement, which was unconstitutional. They tried to pass that through, uh, not by way of treaty, but by executive action. And Joe Biden, who is basically Obama's third administration, uh, tries to resurrect that. Never forget the pallets of cash that Barack Obama sent over to Iran and, of course, the $6 billion that Joe Biden released to them. And we have eased up on the uh, oil sanctions that we had against Iran. So we have now caused Iran to be flush with cash between the Obama administration and now the Biden administration. And therefore, what does that mean? That means your number one exporter of Islamic terrorism in the world is able to fund Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis. And that's why you see all of these attacks that are happening in the Middle East. So first and foremost, we've got to go back to diplomatic sanctions. We have to go back and strengthen and enforce those economic sanctions. We have to isolate Iran. And I think that that will, uh, once again, dry up the or the revenues that are flowing to people like Hamas and Hezbollah and to the, the Houthis as well. And we need to start uh, doing what Donald Trump did. He took out Soleimani. The Iranians got the message. He took out ISIS. He took out al-Baghdadi, Islamic jihadists. They got the message. Yeah, you got to speak their language, and their language is uh, not a love language of, hey, let's coddle you and make sure that you're as comfortable as possible. Yeah. You know, it drives me nuts. We have 
the United States military, the biggest, baddest fighting force on the face of the planet. And you know what? Then we're over here dealing with the Houthis. Like there's some big, you know, group that can challenge the United States. I mean, if we wanted to wipe them off the planet, we could. But we choose to just, well, let's be nice and give them a little warning that, hey, here we come. And, you know, everybody hide under the desk. Uh, It's just unbelievable Mm -hmm. to me that we tolerate this and put our men and women in harm's way. Well, the thing is that this administration is more so focused on proper pronouns uh, yeah. to be yeah. used in the United States military and gender dysphoria and uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and all of these things. And they have made our military, which is a powerful military, a laughingstock. And that's why, again, you see Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, the Islamic terrorists, and also the narco-criminal terrorist uh, organizations known as the cartels, they're making their advancements. And so it's important that we get a different commander-in-chief uh, that is there that understands strength and might and Ronald Reagan's peace through strength ideology. Yeah, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan's peace through strength is just, in my lifetime, one of the most important things that happened to create peace around the world. All right, last question. Uh, the military yeah. has a, a major uh, recruiting problem. I mean, the recruits are way yeah. down. And they seem to be lowering the standards rather than increasing the recruiting. I, what, what would you do if you were in that position to increase the recruiting? Well, you go back to the policies that are effective for a military, the policies to train them, to equip them, to deploy them, give them clear uh, goals and objectives, and allow them to do what they're supposed to do in dealing with our enemies. Uh, but that's not the case now. You get rid of all of these DEI programs, which are really talking more so about divisiveness in our military, uh, this whole gender dysphoria push and all this LGBTQ stuff. That's not why people want to join the military. The people want to join the military to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America and basically to kick the crap out of bad guys. And so we need to get back to that. Yeah, well said. Uh, Colonel Alan West, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. My honor. You take care, Jason, and give the best to your wife and your family. You as well. Thanks again. Again, Colonel Alan West, stay with us. We'll be right back on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions, hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, I'm Jason Javits filling in for Brian and uh, thrilled to do so. We were We were just on the line. Uh, we were talking to uh, Colonel Alan West, and, and part of what we were talking about is Iran with a nuclear weapon and how Iran was uh, funding, you know, all these rebel groups and, and these terrorist organizations, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis. And literally, in the, in the commercial break, since we were talking about this with Colonel West, news came across, breaking news coming across, that the Houthis have successfully shot down a United States MQ-9 Reaper. This is primarily used for reconnaissance, but can be equipped with missiles. It's some $32 million uh, asset of the United States of America, and the Houthis just shot it out of the air. Now, if the President of the United States ordered the United States military to take out the Houthi threat top to bottom, they could do so, I don't know, in a very short amount of time. They have continued to fire on 
the United States. They have continued to put our men and women in harm's way. They have continued to fight and push against uh, shipping uh, there uh, in the area. If you look at it, it's just a, you know, you look at Yemen. It's directly below uh, Saudi Arabia. You've got Oman and then Iran off to the east. Um, And how we tolerate this as a nation, it's just infuriating. So the taxpayers putting up the United States assets in international space, um, in international waters, in international airspace, and then to have the Houthis, Houthis. How in the world can the United States of America be pushed around by the Houthis of all people? That's not the United States military that we pay somewhat $900 billion a year to have to be pushed around by these folks. Take out the threat. Don't put our men and women in harm's way like that, Mr. President. How we continue to tolerate that and experience these types of uh, attacks is just, I just don't understand why the Biden administration doesn't take more action on that. I really just don't understand it. All right, let's go to one other topic here before we get to the top of the hour, uh, and we need to go to a commercial. But, um, you know, it's an interesting time for the Oversight Committee. I used to chair the Oversight Committee. The entire time I was in Congress, I was on the Oversight Committee, and I was the chairman of the Oversight Committee. Now James Comer is doing an investigation about uh, potential uh, for inappropriate behavior by the Biden family and their business efforts. Um So you have Jim Biden, who's the younger brother of Joe Biden, who will be uh, testifying before closed doors. And I don't know if it's structured as a transcribed interview or as a deposition. There are two different ways to do it. Um, But uh, Jim Biden is coming in tomorrow. He is supposed to go behind closed doors and answer questions. Then the following Wednesday, next Wednesday, you have Hunter Biden, who's supposed to come in and do his deposition or, again, transcribed interview. Both are transcribed. Both are sworn. But the the method is just slightly different depending, again, how they structure it. Um, and that comes on the heels of Tony Bobolinsky, who has also gone before the committee. Evan Devin Archer has gone before the committee. And there's a host of others. And I think what you're going to see is... The, the typical way you do this is you go and you do the transcribed interviews. You allow the staff. And, again, it's bipartisan. What happens is they will sit there for an hour. The majority will go first. They will ask an hour straight worth of questions. They'll take a slight break, take a glass of water, stand up, stretch, maybe go to the restroom. Then the Democrats get an hour. This goes back and forth as long as it takes. You could go on for days if you wanted to. There is no stopping um, you may want to take a break and, hey, let's come back tomorrow and continue on. But we've had depositions in the past ago, eight, nine, ten hours. Um, sometimes they're much shorter than that. But, you know, from what I hear in the committee, they literally have like more than 800 types of questions to ask because there's so much information on the Bidens. There's all kinds of information, banking information, emails, um, calendar items, You know, Democrats are out there saying, oh, well, there's no evidence of Joe Biden. Yeah, there's lots of evidence. Uh, Pictures, emails, voicemails, text messages, uh, calendar items, testimony from other people. There's all kinds of evidence Um, and millions and millions of dollars that were flowing. Uh, Jim Biden has lots to answer. A part of it is about this AmeriCorps company. Now, 
the federal government is looking at AmeriCorps and they're saying, wait a second, um, there is an investigation. I think it's $142 million in potential Medicare fraud, I believe, is the allegation that is being looked into, of which uh, Jim Biden was involved and engaged in. But then the very day that there is a $200,000 payment from AmeriCorps uh, to Jim Biden, guess what? Uh, within 24 hours of that, Jim Biden is stroking a, t- a check to Joe Biden for $200,000. So he gets 200, he sends 200. Now they say it's it was a loan. You know, Joe Biden gave him a loan. Well, how is it that Joe Biden's got like hundreds of thousands of dollars? He's worked for the government at this point at, since 1972. I don't know how he has that this, this much money to hand out now. In between his service as vice president running for for president, yeah, he had book deal and he had some other things with some other income. But to hand out these loans, how come there's no documentation? Those are the types of questions that Jim Biden's going to get when he goes before the committee. And that happens tomorrow, about this time tomorrow. That's where Jim Biden's going to be before the oversight committee. The culmination, I think, will be some big public hearings that will come up in March or April. Stay with us. Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Well, almost Brian Kilmeade. Hi, I'm Jason Chavitz. I'm filling in for Brian. Uh, thrilled to do so. He's always so nice to, to let me uh, every once in a while fill in for him. So uh, I really do appreciate it. And there's a lot happening in the world. I mean, we can go all around. And it, it's unbelievable to me some of the things that are happening and that we tolerate as a nation. We should not be tolerating. But uh, I'm thrilled to be joined. Uh, who's joining us is uh, Charlie Hurt. He's a Fox News contributor. He's a columnist for the Washington Times, and he's like all everything at the Washington Times, but he's just an all-around good guy. Charlie Hurt, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Jason. Thanks for having me. Oh, no, I always enjoy the discussion with you. You know, we were talking about some breaking news about uh, what was going on with the Houthis, uh, how we tolerate as a nation uh, these uh, attacks by the Houthis. It's unbelievable. We had reported... Fox is learning that an MQ-9 Reaper, this is a $32 million uh, drone that we own, uh, Was it has the ability to do reconnaissance as well as, it can be equipped with missiles, it can be uh, proactive. It, it was uh, shot down, destroyed by the Houthis. Also getting word, just coming out of the Pentagon uh, through our producers there, that a U.S.-owned Greek-flagged ship uh, was targeted and hit uh, this evidently was carrying grain headed to Yemen. They're having a huge um, humanitarian crisis there. But this is being uh, targeted and hit. Don't know whether this vessel sank or if anybody was killed. But the idea that the uh, Houthis were able to take action and hit a U.S.-owned ship. Um, Charlie, I don't how the Biden-Harris administration tolerates this. I mean, we have the biggest, baddest fighting force on the face of the planet. If we wanted to take out the Houthis, I got to believe we could. Yeah, exactly. No, it's really amazing. And, and you know, it's a it's a reminder of the old adage that, you know, you don't get to uh, you, you don't get to make peace. You don't get to you, you don't get to pick peace. Only your enemy can decide on peace. And uh, and when you have an administration like the Biden administration, 
that uh, completely lays down and uh, offers no threat to anyone and is, uh, you know, they, they move red lines, they make red lines, then they move them, and they uh, pre- present no uh, front like they actually care about defending the country. And, uh, and you know, of course, the open borders is a perfect example of that, that the whole world sees, and they just realize that these people are not serious. You know, it's funny, uh, enemies all around the world are going to take advantage of that. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Um, you know, you, the, the, the reason that this doesn't happen under other administrations is because they're, our enemies are afraid that they're going to get absolutely annihilated because, like you just said, we have the most powerful fighting force on the globe. And, you know, and, and, and it's funny, you know, you don't even have to always use the, the fighting force in order to, uh, to, to, to keep the peace. If you just if people just know or believe that you will use it, that's enough. And, and these people look at, at Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and they just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, they're not going to do anything. We can get away with murder. And so that's what they're doing. Well, exactly. The most peaceful time in my lifetime was uh, President Ronald Reagan mm. and President Donald Trump. And the reason it was so peaceful is because we'd had an incredible military and you had presidents that I think the other side thought, yeah, they might just come after us. Yeah. And, and you, <laughs> you know, know it's, it's interesting because both of those men, they demonstrated restraint. Uh, yeah. they, you know, they, they didn't go around wanting to get involved in things all over the place. You know, Reagan was was loathe to, to get involved in foreign disputes. But as you point out, when it when it came time to do that, he would. Same with uh, Donald Trump. And the other thing about Donald Trump is that they also thought he was half crazy. And yeah. so they were terrified of him. And 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 I, and and, you know, if you you know, you, you can Trump will say this uh, openly that that. He, you know, he he was glad to use that to his advantage, where he could he could say something, and maybe you know he could say, look, if you do this, I'm going to do this, and and you know he did this with with North Korea, he did this with Russia, he did this with Xi Jinping, uh, you know, even if they di- they didn't really believe he <laughs> would do what they said, what he said he would do, there was ten percent of them that were like. He might, he though. Might. He's just that crazy. And it it goes a long way to keeping the peace. Yeah, he also did, I think, Donald Trump. Look, Donald Trump knows how to negotiate. Yes. Right? If you had to find somebody to negotiate, uh, would you pick Joe Biden or would you pick, <laughs> would you pick uh, uh, Donald Trump if you, to, 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 uh, to do this on your behalf? And, and clearly, Donald Trump knows how to negotiate. Now, one of the interesting tactics that he uses, he's actually pretty praiseworthy of these international leaders. Yeah. Kim Jong-un, President Xi, uh, Putin. I think he knows how to take the blood pressure down just yeah. a little bit. Don't You don't have to prove your manhood with me. I will respect you. I will interact with you. But, yeah, if you go and cross the line, I'm going to. I'm going to Just, kick your butt. I'm, go- I'm going to destroy you. Yeah, you don't. He, he does, you don't pick unnecessary fights. You focus on the thing that you want, and everything. Let every you know. Let everything else just sort of be what it is. But but the other thing is that, and and I think the point is negotiate the ability to negotiate. And the most important thing, I would say, like the most important thing by you know by far in negotiating is is a very simple thing. It's what is your personal interest 
and how how do you get it? And if you are focused on personal interest, what you want, and then of course you know let other things slide. It doesn't matter. Um, you're gonna. You, it, it's gonna be very clear to everybody what it is you want, and then and then the other side realizes, okay, that's what that person wants. Well, this is what I want, and so then you can. You, you know the other word for that? America first. Yeah. And everybody freaks out in Washington when you say America first. But, of course, it's a simple declaration of what it is that you're interested in. And what else should you be? Mexico first? Right. Ukraine first? Russia first? It's insane. And these people in Washington are so uh, – they've, they've been so watered down and so sort of – mind warped into thinking that that it's a bad thing to be self-interested our entire system of government let alone our entire economy but our entire system of government is built on self-interest like the whole reason we have separation of powers in washington is yeah. that the the judiciary is to jealously regard uh, to, uh you know to protect the ju- the powers of the judiciary and the same with the legislative branch and the and the Executive branch. Well, that's a. You know what happens? It doesn't make anything perfect, but you know what happens? Really good things come out of that, or, or not, not, not even necessarily really good things. The best possible things come out of that because humans can screw everything up. But self-interest goes a long way, and and I think that to me that with Reagan and Trump, that was the defining characteristic of both of them. They both were unashamed of embracing self-interest and saying, no, you know what? This is what America needs. America needs this, and therefore we're going to fight for this, and we want to find a common ground to give you what you want so we get what we want. And then you get peace. Yeah. Along with that, you know, I just don't believe that that the left – um, and the Democrats, and certainly those on the, you know, on, on Capitol Hill, I don't think they truly understand Donald Trump. They never mm-hmm. took time to understand him. They don't get him. They they ignore him. Um, they go after him. Uh, but they've never truly understood how he, how this billionaire from New York is able to relate to blue-collar people and others. I, I want you to listen to this very quick exchange. This is Senator Elizabeth Warren on Pod Save America, um, flabbergasted, uh, trying to explain why voters miss the Trump economy because they think the Trump economy was just the worst thing ever. Uh, but people do remember where there was four years of Donald Trump and life was really good. Cut 20. Why do you think that people, uh, all these polls show like a lot of voters look back on the Trump years and they think they didn't like a lot about it, but they think the economy was good. I don't know. I, I can't explain. I can't explain polling. No, I mean, I, I yeah, can't. No, I, don't. I, I can't. And I can't explain how the narratives come to be. I also can't explain how sensitive are they. I, I mean, they just they still don't get it. Uh, maybe inflation has something to do yeah. with that. I don't know, Charlie. Yeah, no, it's so funny. And, and I don't I, I always struggle with this because I, I tend to. And this is why I'm a, a dope who doesn't belong in in Washington. I tend to try to ascribe best motives for people that I, I don't agree with just because I'm, I'm generally interested in hearing what people I don't agree with have to say because I, I figure, well, they must know something I don't know. And it's a very foolish way to go to approach Washington because uh, ascribing best motives to your opponent is is a fool's errand in Washington. But that said, I, I, I've struggled with this. Trump is a can be a jerk. 
he says he's impolitic, he's vulgar, he says all this. And so, I, you know, I, I do know people who don't like him because of those – for those reasons. And I get it and I understand it. But then there's this other part of me that I'm starting – or I, I'm certain that – and it's particularly politicians in Washington who despise him, not because of those things or not even because they don't get him. It's because they are so terrified of him, because he is somebody who has broken down all the barriers, uh, all sorts of barriers between Democrats and Republicans. And he has managed to uh, steal so much of the Democrat base and bring it over to the Republican side. Obviously, he's alienated some portions of the Republican base, which is you know not optimal. But, uh, you know, but I, I get it. Um, but his ability to and, and, and like, you know, Democrats have run politics forever, our entire lifetimes based on race and gender. And they try to make, yeah. you know divide everything into the, what, what the identity by their identity politics, which is just, just all it is, is, uh, you know, political segregation. And they embrace it. And of course, you know, the Democrat Party has been the party of segregation forever. And so it shouldn't be surprising. But that's how they view the world. They view everybody by race. And so and then Donald Trump comes along and he breaks all that stuff down and he wins over Hispanic voters talking about the wall and wins over black voters by talking about economic issues that Democrats have ignored or or crime or whatever it is that Democrats have ignored all this time. And it's just so interesting to me. I, I, I think that people like Liz Warren, what they hate about and she knows she's she's not a a stupid person. I think that what she recognizes about she understands Trump better than she lets on. And she recognizes that he is there to destroy this system that Democrats and Republicans have put to, put together in Washington, and it's a real threat to their existence because yeah. you know it, on the on the issues. Oh my gosh! If you could take Trump out of it and just had it on the issues, had like a blind taste, like a a blind election where everybody just voted on like the the issues and and yeah. the success, the quality of success. Oh my gosh! Trump would win with like 80 percent of the vote. It's so funny. Yeah. And and to say that people just don't under how can they think that the economy was better under Trump? Uh, Because it was people understand their own pocketbooks. And I heard one set of uh, people that were interviewed said, well, under Trump, I had money. Now I don't. Yeah. And you, when you go out to get a cheeseburger and fries and it's eighteen dollars, um, yeah, that's a, that's a little. And is there anything more annoying than having somebody uh, squall at you and tell you that you don't actually know that you're that you're poor, or, the, or that oh no, you're fine. <laughs> Oh, you're head- you, you don't, don't know what you're headache. talking about. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we're talking with uh, Charlie Hurt, and he's going to continue to stay with us, I believe, uh, for another block here. So stay with us. I want to talk about some immigration and things that are happening there. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Actually, today with uh, Jason Chaffetz filling in for Brian, but uh, I'm also joined by uh, with Charlie Hurt of the Washington Times, also a Fox News contributor. Charlie, we are talking about a lot of things all over the globe, uh, but I want to talk about the immigration crisis. It's not going away. It's not being solved. It could be solved, but it's not being solved, and um what what's your top line take on this because now we're hearing and seeing these video of 
this surge of migrants, particularly from China and Syria and other places all over the world, coming through Hakumba, California. The video is just stunning to see these people who we don't know are just coming through and walking right into the United States. Well, I mean, I guess the the top line would be, you know, think about the last uh, six months or actually the really the last two, two three, or three years. Um, how many times we've looked at each other and said, we've never seen anything like this. Right. And 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 then two months later, it's like, we've never seen anything like this. This is nuts. This is crazy. And then two more months. And so we've had so many iterations of that. And so here we are now. How many more times between now and November are we going to look at each other and say that whatever we're seeing today is nothing like what we are going to be seeing in two months? And whether that manifests itself in a terrorist attack, which, you know, you know, security officials in Washington say without it, they've never seen red flags like this since before 9-11. So is it going to take the manifest itself that way or is it just going to be, uh, you know, some other crazy invasion? We're now seeing these images, you know, hunters with their uh, game cameras in uh, along the northern border in Vermont. Hunters are told to carry a pistol with them in Vermont because, you know, while most of the people coming across are just illegals trying to get in the United States, probably 10 percent of them are you know, act, bad actors who are have something else in mind. Ten, ten well, percent. Listen, listen ten, to this. Ten percent of ten million is a lot of people. It's, it certainly is, and it only takes a lot if you. Yeah, that. exactly. Uh, Laura Ingram uh, was interviewing a number of undecided South Carolina voters. Listen to this cut six. This is Eric Brown talking about his concern. Human trafficking for me, the, the, the part of, the, of that destroying our America as far as yeah. the thought of, of children being molested, just, it just sickens me. I mean, I, I've got this whole list of, of um, cuts, if they, they call them, these interviews that she was doing. And they're talking about the fentanyl crisis. They're talking about human trafficking. They're talking about the sex trafficking. They're talking about uh, how we neglect our own veterans and the homeless yeah. Uh, to think this is just something that's on Fox News or, or you know, just the Republican right, I think the rest of the country is really starting to feel this and understand it. And But Joe Biden's just indignant on this. Yeah, and the, and the only reason prior to this that, you know, more people didn't recognize it, I think, is because it, it really wasn't affecting them necess- directly in their communities. And – you know, because it, but but you know, places like Texas and Southern California and Arizona, you know, the, the, you know, they've been aware of these problems forever, um, and and so, but suddenly, once it gets in your in your face, it, you realize it really is. It's like an eighty percent issue, and yeah. Democrats are ignoring it. Yeah, not only are they ignoring it, they're not getting rid of the sanctuary cities and sanctuary yeah. states. They keep inviting them in. Yeah. And then you read about more and more appropriations going to these people. Yeah. Charlie Hurt, Fox News contributor, Washington Times, all things that are at the Washington Times. Charlie Hurt, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks, Stay with us. We're going to be right back. Stay with us.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz filling in for Brian, and thanks for joining us. Lots happening around the world. Uh, one thing I wanted to note, this is uh, a particularly important anniversary. Uh, back in 1962, John Glenn was the first American to orbit the Earth on this day in 1962 uh amazing man amazing life amazing service to our country in so many ways uh we miss john glenn uh but it's worth noting on this day that uh, that historic event happened and look how far uh technology and the space race and everything has happened uh, it's just an important date that caught my eye today uh we're thrilled to be joined uh, now by, with somebody i've never spoken with but ambassador adam arelli I hope I pronounced that right, Is the, was the U.S. ambassador to the Kingdom of Bahrain. He was also the Deputy uh, State Department spokesperson for Secretary of State Colin Powell, as well as Condoleezza Rice. Uh, ambassador, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Oh, wow. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to get your perspective. You know, your service uh, overseas, your your time and efforts um and dedication there at the at the State Department. I want to get your take on what's going on with Israel because the you know it started out when Israel was attacked savagely, thirteen hundred I think plus people that were killed in this terrorist attack by Hamas. Um, but you know the the president I thought actually did a good job of initially uh, President Biden of initially saying, "Hey, we're we're all in, we're all supportive of Israel," but now. Um, I, you get all these increasing number of reports saying, oh, well, we need to go a little softer. We can't be doing this. And, um, but what's your take on how President Biden has morphed over the course of time in his unequivocal supposed support of Israel? Yeah, well, you know, I just think that Biden might have might start having buyer's remorse, right? I mean, he... He sort of like bought a car without bargaining, and now it's not everything he thought it was going to be. And, and by that, I mean, look, <laughs> on the one hand, you know, the president had no choice but to say, America stands by Israel. We'll do everything we can to help you. Because remember, Israel had just, uh, you know, October 7th was, was Israel's 9-11. Right. And, you know, there was nothing, there was nothing an American president couldn't do but but say that right and interestingly enough I, I read an article today that says you know biden is now more popular in israel by a factor of like 10 or 20 percent than prime minister netanyahu <laughs> so so you know that explains his his statement you know right after the attack but you know ever since then biden's been trying to kind of walk things back right why because He's he's now holding a tiger by the tail, and that tiger is, you know, Israel and, 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 and its attack on Hamas and its destruction of Gaza, which has killed almost 30,000 people and brought a huge out or, or created a huge outcry among people around the world, including the United States, including Democrats who would normally vote for Biden. So. You know, this is turning out to be a lot more complicated, I think, than anybody anticipated. 
Well, let's get uh, this is Michael Allen. He was on Fox and Friends first uh, talking about the Biden administration. Of course, Michael Allen was the former special assistant for national security to President Bush. Uh, cut 29. Here we have Israel fighting terrorists in an existential threat. And I took it as the Biden administration shooting Israel in the back. Israel needs more time to deal with this terrorist force. I understand we have grave concerns about the humanitarian situation, so let's continue to press for assistance and aid to get through. But we wouldn't have been dictated to after 9-11 in Afghanistan if the world community was standing up and saying, hey, you know what, America, back down against al-Qaeda. By the same token, Israel ought to be given more time and space to finish the job in Gaza, and then we can help them pull back. I mean, I think the goal here is to, to eradicate, dismantle, um, and destroy Hamas, is it not? I, it, it, the goal is clear. And, and when Hamas is the one that's using human shields and when Hamas is putting assets and personnel uh, in hospitals, guess what? There's a consequence to that. Yeah, no doubt. I, I don't think the, the discussion or the debate isn't, you know, whether Hamas needs to be destroyed, Right. Everybody agrees that that that's the goal, and that and and it should be the goal. I think where there's a where there's some disagreement, including within Israel, I might add, is what's the best way to do that, right? Right, right, right. Um, so, so for example, <laughs> and and oh, by the way, you know, I, I think that the fight against Hamas is very, very different than the fight against Al Qaeda. Because with al-Qaeda, we were going against a, 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 some people in the mountains of Afghanistan, right? With Hamas, we're going after a, 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 a resistance movement or a terrorist group that's, that's embedded in the population of 2 million people in an area the, small, the size of Manhattan, or maybe smaller than Manhattan, and that have had years and years and years and years to – Disguise their operations in civilian areas. So it's a much it's an it's an urban fight, not a fight in a faraway country that has no people. And that's a very different you know that's a very different problem set from a military standpoint than we faced in Al Qaeda. That's yeah, I, I, and so the the question is about is means to, to, to means not ends. How do you destroy them as opposed to whether you destroy them? Yeah, I, I, there is a um, concerted effort by Israel to give advance notice. We are going to come here. We are going to bomb this. And let there be no doubt that they have. But when they give foreshadowing and they give warning, when they try to say, hey, we want you to exit to the south, and then they uh, don't do it or the Hamas uh, – doesn't allow them to escape yeah there's a consequence to that too and uh, i think israel has done an incredible job of telling people look out here we come get out of harm's way and but it's sadly so many people have not ambassador i got to switch gears with you in the short time that we have uh we're getting news out of the pentagon our producers there from fox news are telling us that the houthis have uh, not only uh, hit or targeted and hit a U.S.-owned Greek flag ship filled with grain headed to Yemen, 
But they have also destroyed, uh, shot out of the sky, an MQ-9 Reaper, which is mm-hmm. can be used for reconnaissance or mm-hmm. can be equipped with missiles. A $32 million asset of our military. Uh, Houthis firing at the U.S. Um, with impunity. They, they just do it, and there doesn't seem to be much of a consequence from the Biden-Harris administration. Mm-hmm. Well, you're getting me on a sore subject, Uh well, good. <laughs> tell us, tell us what your raw thoughts are. Well, the the, the one thing you didn't mention is uh, is that I think I think CENTCOM, NASCENT, found or intercepted or otherwise seized an unmanned underwater vehicle, right? Which is basically a drone that goes underwater, which is extremely dangerous, extremely lethal and extremely sophisticated. And, oh, by the way, the Houthis don't have the capacity to build these things. Only one country does, and that's Iran. So, look, let's be clear. The Houthis are getting and, – and, and, oh, by the way, uh, Deputy CENTCOM Commander Bradley Cooper said this on, on 60 Minutes over the weekend. He said, look, it's, we have, we have inc- a lot of evidence that says, you know, the Houthis are getting the arms, they're getting the training, and they've got IRGC people in Yemen doing the targeting for them, right? Doing the targeting for them. So this isn't a fight with the Houthis. It's a fight with Iran. So if you want, if you're serious about defending commercial shipping and, oh, by the way, American seamen, then you go after Iran. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. How do you do that? How do you go after Iran without starting a world war? Do you go? Do you um, physically, kinetically take out assets in Iran, or are there other ways to make the well, pain so great that Iran says, "Yeah, we really don't want to be doing this anymore"? Well, I don't think anybody wants a world war. It's not worth. Nobody wants a world war. I think there are steps short of that. Uh, one thing you could do is there are Iranian assets, naval assets in the region that are uh, providing command and control for the IRGC who's acting, who are operating in Yemen. Go after those naval assets, ships. They've got a cargo ship that's they've got a cargo ship that they've converted into a command center, sitting a couple, you know, ten or twenty miles off the coast of Yemen. Sink it. <laughs> Sink it. What are you afraid of, that Iran's going to escalate? Well, you know, it's only a matter of time before they hit an American ship, American warship. Yeah, that, I mean, there's... it just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me why, why we're holding our fire on this, because sooner or later, you know, Iran is either going to make a mistake or, or a miscalculation, and we're going to have to do it anyway, uh, like we saw when they killed our soldiers in Jordan. And we still didn't hit Iran. We went after their, again, their proxies in Iraq. You know, that's just, you know, that's just, that's just beating around the bush without uprooting it root and branch, which is what we need to do. Yeah, you have to cut off the funding so they don't have the money. Uh, that has to do. I, I don't think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are serious about Russia. And I don't think they're serious uh, uh, about Iran. Because if they were, they would have energy production in the United States that would drive down the price and the cost of fuel. And if that happened on the world markets, guess what? Iran doesn't have the money that it needs to fight. Russia doesn't have the money that it needs to fight in Ukraine. 
that is the number one thing you can do to to make sure that you starve the beast, so to speak. And the other well, thing is, there's I'm, no I'm reason. I disagree with you on that. I mean, why? Maybe it's true. You hurt Iran and Russia, but you also hurt our allies. You know, why? Hurt why? our allies in the Middle East. But the other point no, no. Is, why? Wait, why like, would we hurt our allies if if well, we are the ones producing you know, and if, exporting? Well, if if lower if Russia's not getting resources from its oil. Because and Iran, because because of the price, then same is true for Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Kuwait and, and all those other guys. Oh, they can handle it though. They 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 yeah, can handle I it. Think, they are still going to be better, producing and making money. If, if you want to squeeze Russia, <laughs> the best way to do it is to give Ukraine every weapon it needs tomorrow, and that'll that'll get rid of Putin much faster than a slow strangulation. On oil price. Well, you, you got to be able to operate those weapons. And the other thing is we gave them tens and tens of billions of dollars. Now, where did that money go? Where did it get to? I've never, I just don't like the idea of giving them money. They should have no, been I giving agree. them actual Give weapons. Them They're running out of ammunition. They're running out of ammunition because we haven't, we haven't, Congress hasn't passed an aid package yet that was put, put up there months ago. Well, that's a whole other discussion about protecting our southern border before, before we actually start worrying about other people's borders. We will have, we all hopefully have that, that further discussion. It's certainly one that's uh, uh, raging in Washington D.C. Ambassador, uh, we really truly appreciate it. Adam Arelli, did I pronounce it right? Yes, that's right. Thank you. All sir. right, uh, Ambassador Arelli, thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, really do appreciate it. Stay with us. We'll be right back. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, it's actually Jason Chapin's filling in for Brian. Um, That's a really good guest, really good discussion. We got uh, a lot more to come, so stay with us. But uh, a lot of calendar items out there happening. I, I, I just thought this would be worthwhile talking about what's happening because... I like foreshadowing what's going to happen down the pike here. Uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, Jim Biden, uh, this is the younger brother of Joe Biden. He's been closely tied in with Hunter Biden and the Biden family business um, and the allegations of impropriety and using Joe Biden's name and inappropriately uh, using that to drive millions of dollars into the Biden's bank accounts and uh He's going to have to testify before the um, in a closed door deposition. Not sure if it's a deposition or a transcribed interview, but that's going to happen uh, tomorrow before the oversight committee. Uh, Chairman Comer's been pretty good at releasing transcripts uh, after the fact. They need to have those uh, reviewed for accuracy and whatnot, um, and that's due to happen tomorrow. Now he could come in and just plead the fifth. Um, might do that. Um, not only is he tied up in this uh, federal investigation, Jim Biden, Jim Biden, uh, with AmeriCorps and the meltdown. I think they filed for bankruptcy, that organization. He was deeply involved in it. Um, and there's some $142 million in Medicare fraud that I think is being, being investigated there. Um, but also the $200,000 check, Jim Biden allegedly gets this $200,000 check from AmeriCorps, the very next day he strokes a $200,000 check 
to Joe Biden. So uh, some big questions uh, about what was going on there. A lot of allegations. Uh, Politico did an in-depth report about Jim Biden and, and said that at one point uh, some of the senior executives in America said, yeah, hey, I'm sitting right next to Jim Biden, saying, hey, I'm sitting right here next to my brother um, and uh, talking about Joe Biden and also saying, hey, if what you're doing, AmeriCorps, with rural uh, health care, this is going to be a really good thing. I think we can get a lot of exposure because uh, Joe can talk about this on the campaign trail. He can talk about this in his campaign. And um, and certainly the inference is that he could open up a lot of doors with his contacts overseas and in the uh, administration. These are the allegations, the reporting that I've read, all going to be questioned t- tomorrow. And then a week from tomorrow, Hunter Biden comes in to do his, you know. All the bravado and everything he said about, oh, I want to testify, I want to testify. Okay, well, you're going to get your chance again, yet again. They're being very polite over there in allowing to come in for this transcribed interview. Again, I think the big question is, does he plead the fifth? Does he actually answer questions? Um, Hunter Biden doesn't strike me as somebody who is very disciplined in staying on message and even keeping his mouth quiet if he has to. Um, So it will be interesting to see if he answers questions. Could be a fairly short uh, event. Um, typically what you do is, having been the chairman of this committee, you pepper them with questions. If they continue to plead the fifth, at some point you kind of let that go. But you do probably throw 30 questions at them. And if at that point you, it's there's a pattern um, and they will say, hey, he's just going to continue to do that then, you know, you probably cut it off after a while. But you do go on for a little bit. Um, And then I think the big one is August 19th. The Democratic convention starts. Will Joe Biden ultimately be the Democratic nominee? Personally, my guess, all just a guess. We're all guessing, right? I don't think he's going to be the nominee when they walk out of that convention on August 22nd. But we'll see. That's the political intrigue here. A lot of people, a lot of Democrats questioning whether Joe Biden has it in him. Will it be Kamala Harris? I don't know. That's kind of scary, too. So lots to talk about, lots to think about, but lots going to happen here in a fairly short amount of time. Thanks again for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Stay with us. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Well, not quite, Brian Comey, today. This is Jason Chaffetz. Uh, used to be in Congress once upon a time. Now I'm a Fox News contributor. Filling in for Brian. Uh, always enjoy doing it. Thank you so much for joining us. we got a lot to pack in this hour, and I want to get right after it with uh, one of my favorites. Uh, he is the chairman of the Competitiveness Coalition. Scott Brown, but you know him better as maybe the ambassador, former ambassador to New Zealand and former United States senator from the great state of Massachusetts. Please, I'm just thrilled to have uh, Senator, Ambassador Scott Brown joining us. Hey, it's great to be on. Good to hear your voice. Yes, no, it's good to chat with you again. Uh, competitive, competitiveness coalition, what, what do you do there? What, to explain that to me. Well, we uh, try to take on Congress and the administration for basically uh, taking away the innovation opportunities for our innovators. Uh, you have Lena Khan at the FTC, 
excuse me, uh, you know, most recently in my former home state of Massachusetts, uh, I wrote about an Elizabeth Warren joined forces with Lita Khan. Excuse me, and uh, it basically threw away 350 great-paying jobs uh, with a, uh, of working with Amazon. So we're fighting back uh, with some of the stupid overregulation that really is an, uh, not only affects our large employers, but our small innovators that are looking to get a leg up. And who's loving this but China? And uh, they want to be number one, and we're number one. And if we keep it up, we're going to be number two. Well, explain this. You had a, an op-ed in the Boston Herald. People can look it up. Uh, Scott Brown, Boston Herald. And uh, about the FTC, it, you know, kind of shamelessly cheering on the collapse of the iRobot acquisition. What happened there? And you, you, you write about 350 jobs lost in the state of Massachusetts. Well, when I was a U.S. senator, I did a lot of work with them. I mean, this is a company that obviously does a lot with security, a lot with uh, uh, military, and uh, just fantastic high-tech, fantastic innovators uh, and high-paying jobs. But, listen, they were going to do something uh, with Amazon to modernize their facilities and their opportunities. And as a result of that, uh, you know, they didn't like it. Elizabeth Warren and and Lena Khan didn't didn't like it. So they did everything to squash that. And as a result, those jobs went away. And then they'll start outsourcing them to other parts of the the world. And it's it's just typical of what this administration does. Anytime that we have something that's going well, and it's it's creating jobs, uh, you know, for uh, people who care about development and care about our, our opportunities opportunity to lead in this world they 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 squash it and it's it's not right now the ftc also has a a commissioners um and uh you know you've been pretty outspoken about trying to get these commissioners that were uh the republican commissioners because usually these things are structured such that they have to have a certain number of democrats certain number of republicans but they got to get those people confirmed well, not only confirmed that one of the Republicans resigned because uh, Lena's, uh, Lena's using this as the arm of the administration. Here, here's the problem, and what people need to understand, yeah, Joe Biden's old, and is he is he competent? I don't think so. I don't think he's going to make it to the next election. But uh, the way things look right now with the polling numbers and, and uh, what's happening with uh, every time they bring another lawsuit against Trump, uh, he gets stronger and stronger and stronger, and it started with, with Alan Bragg's case. Uh, don't forget. Uh, there are all these unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats, you know it, you were there, yeah. who are doing and imposing all these new regulations, and they see the writing on the wall, and they don't have a heck of a lot of time to screw this country up. You see it when it comes to immigration, you see it when it comes to innovation, you see it when it comes to energy and overregulation of every way, shape, and form. So these guys are very savvy, and they're very smart, and uh, Joe Biden probably doesn't even know what they're doing, quite frankly. And so, you know, that's what we need to be worried about and so uh you have those people stifling everything i've never seen anything like it when we have an opportunity to lower energy no well let's screw that up well we had an, an opportunity to create jobs ah, no let's let's screw that up and it, it, when does it stop it's only going to stop if we take over obviously the presidency and shift the house and senate and finally work together to figure this thing out yeah, it, it is stunning to me how tone deaf they are, and it just makes you wonder, really, what what are you doing that's in the best interest of the United States of America? You know, what, one of the more influential voices, particularly in the black community, is Charlemagne the God. Uh, he was on ABC this week uh, a few days ago with Jonathan Carl. Listen to this exchange with Charlemagne and uh, Jonathan Carl. Cut 21. 
he's just an uninspiring candidate. Like, you know, there's nothing about, you know, Joe Biden that makes you want to listen to him. That's why he should be leaning on, you know, his vice president. You Has know, she but, met your expectations? Yeah, no, she hasn't. Like Donald Trump is, what, four years, three years younger than President Biden? But he just comes off a lot more youthful. I mean, slow Joe, it does not inspire a lot of people. It certainly his work ethic is, you know, it's like he's half retired at this point. Well, listen, you know, I know a guy takes more vacations than anyone I've ever known. Uh, you have a situation where everyone in D.C. and everyone around the country knows that Joe is failing. It's sad. I know him. I work to them. You work to them. Uh, you know, I don't wish that on anybody. But this is the United States of America. We need someone who's there 24-7, 365, and it's certainly not Kamala. I mean, she's she's a joke. Uh, hasn't even, you know, she's the border czar. And what's she done exactly for the border? It's, uh, nothing. Absolutely nothing. And, yeah, listen, he's old. But once again, as I said, everyone knows he's old, but that's not enough. Uh, the people behind the scenes are, are running the show when they're screwing this country up badly. Um, and we need to stop it. Uh, the, the illegal immigration issue is uh, they're not migrants. They're illegal immigrants. They're here illegally. They should be processed, uh, stopped at the border, like what happened with President Trump. And um, I, I've never, ever seen anything like it. And it's got to stop. I'm, I'm, I'm just so upset about it. And, and people need to get involved. They need to get involved in their local school committees and their, you know, to end the wokeness there. They need to get involved in their selectmen and state reps, state senators, U.S. senators, you know, and they're even higher. You've got to get involved, folks, because, you know, as we're, as we're seeing our, our, our place around the world fail uh, in our safety and security with the fentanyl and everything else that's going on, enough. Let's just stop. Enough. Yeah, it, it, it's stunning to me that they just continue to let it go on. I mean, immigration is a really good example of they can take executive action. They can do something unilaterally, and they did make a fundamental change. And you're right, Kamala Harris, the borders are. I mean, it, and I look back above and beyond just being the so-called borders are. What has she done in the last three and a half years? She's she's out there saying, oh, I'm hey, I'm ready. Ready for what? What have you been doing for the last three and a half years? I, I yet to see something in her portfolio that she can point to and say, yeah, you know, I really took this on. And, boy, we made life better for America. I, I don't see it. Well, she's a great laugher. I mean, she, she knows how to laugh. <laughs> that is distinctive, there, yeah. There, there must be like an open mic night she can go to and, and participate <laughs> and laugh at herself. Uh, listen, I, I, we need we need leadership right now. Uh, what's happening, obviously, in Ukraine, uh, you know, Russia just took over a city. And, and listen, whether you like that or not, and whether you want to support it or not, we made a commitment. And if people are going to trust us around the world uh, to honor our commitments, uh, we need to follow through. And, and, and I'm sorry, whether you, whether you support Ukraine or Russia, bottom line is we're in it. We've, we've made a commitment, and Biden screwed it up from day one. You know, we, we could rehash that. But now we're, we're in it. So let's finish it properly. Give them the tools and resources they need to do their job. Otherwise, uh, Putin's going to be emboldened. His economy is not hurting. He's doing all the oil on the black market, as you know. Uh, he's sell selling war machine materials all around the world. His economy's you know, pretty good, uh, considering everything that's happened to him. So we need to make sure that we finish the job and we get out of a lot of these situations that Biden has put us in. Uh, President Trump did. Yeah, no, he did. And uh, it was a lot more peaceful when you definitively laid out the goal, the line, and you have the wherewithal to back up what you're going to do. But 
You know, it, it's just that's what you, you're wishy-washy. Well, one last thing, going back to the election, yeah. um, it, it, because elections are so pivotal. But I still worry that the Democrats are far out ahead of the Republicans, not because of the issues, because probably, I don't know, I'm picking out a number, 80% of the issues Republicans can win on. Um, there's some touchy subjects like abortion um, and democracy that the Democrats will try to ride as their issues. But when you go down on safety, security, crime, the border, international inflation, the economy, you know, you kind of look at the Republicans say, OK, they got to they're better off at that. But the world is controlled by those people who win. And and I think Democrats are so much better at getting out the vote, leveraging unions, leveraging not for profits and voting early, doing all those things, the Republicans, they tend to complain about, but they don't really organize and get out the vote. How do you see it? Well, listen, uh, on, on the abortion issue, it's states' rights. It, it should go back to the states. Here they fought for 50 years to have it go back to the states, and now they want to bring it back and federalize okay. it to pick a number. It's, it's, it makes no sense. And with regard to getting out the vote, well, why don't we stop complaining and start doing what they're doing until the rules change? Okay, yeah. let's play by the rules. And they play by the rules, but they, they maximize every loophole. Well, damn it, let's do the same thing and stop whining. You know, just get out and do it. Let's play them, you know, toe-to-toe. So just like a football game, you're not going to take your quarterback and put your fourth-string quarterback in or your punter in to play quarterback. That's what we're doing. You know, yeah, if you well, want if, if, if you don't like the, the ballot harvesting, you don't like all this stuff that they're getting away with, then damn it, let's do it ourselves. Let's well, go. The chair of the in, RNC, the, the chair of the RNC, the quarterback, if you will, is, you know, or the coach, you're you're changing the coach right in the middle of the game in the fourth quarter with just a, a few minutes to go in essence. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, Ambassador Senator Scott Brown, the chairman of the Competitiveness Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Truly do appreciate it. Hey, God bless you and God bless America. Go get them, everybody. Thank you. Scott Brown again. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Remember to check out Brian's show, One Nation, Saturdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. If you already have plans, set up that DVR and watch when you get home. That's One Nation, Saturdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Be there. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz filling in for Brian. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to my book, The Puppeteers. The people who control the people who control America. You want to understand what's really going on in the White House? Who's really control? Check out my book. It was four weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, The Puppeteers. There's an audio version of it. You can get the ebook. You can get the, the hard copy, but The Puppeteers. I um, also want to play this little clip from uh, Newt Gingrich, who was on primetime with Jesse Waters about what we were just talking about with uh, Senator Scott Brown. Cut 14. Uh, and I think we have to start with two different sides. One is Republicans have to get into the game of getting people to vote very early, getting them to go to the polls, but vote by mail, do whatever. But I was very disappointed in the New York special election, where clearly the Republican National Committee's uh, bank the vote effort had failed totally. So if you're not in the game, if you're not even trying, 
you shouldn't expect to win. Republicans tend to complain about things. Um, Voting is administered at the state level and by the counties. And many of the ways we vote have changed. Now, if it was up to me, everybody would vote same day, same time. Uh, You'd have an identification. I wouldn't even have vote by mail. I I wouldn't have that. There's certain people like our military, uh, maybe people who come in and and say, hey, look, I'm going to be out of town. I want to do a... Uh, a, a vote like that. But to just go out in mass and do this, I think is fundamentally wrong. I think chain of custody is a very, very important thing. But the rules changed and Republicans, you haven't comp- you haven't changed, helped to change the rules. So you got to play by these rules, ballot harvesting, uh, vote by mail, all this. These are things that the Democrats have mastered and Republicans are just trying to figure out. You better get your act in in, in line if you're going to actually make a difference that's my preaching for the moment. Um, I want to shift here because at the top of the hour, uh, noon Eastern, and I know this show doesn't always play at the exact time, but at noon Eastern, Nikki Haley has a press conference. Now, there's some speculation online. She's calling this uh, state of the race. Is this Nikki Haley dropping out of the race? Now, she's vowed that she's in it. She's in it to win it. She's going to keep playing forever. How many times have we heard that from candidates just before they, they drop out? I think it's interesting, state of the race, um, maybe, maybe she's just kind of laying the groundwork. But when you're polling 25 30% per, uh, percent below the front runner in your home state where you were governor, maybe, just maybe, this is the time where she says, you know what, I'm actually out. Uh, I'm no longer a candidate for the presidency of the United States. I don't know. Pure speculation. I don't see anything official. I don't see anything from Fox News that's saying this is what's happening. Uh, I just see on the bottom uh, the right screen of the Fox News uh, television uh, that's coming across that uh, looks like, you know, they're going to cover it. Uh, Nikki Haley addresses the state of the of the race. Um, But there's also other speculation online. Is this should this be the time for her to drop out? Um, Perhaps. Let's listen to Ben Dominich, he was on the Ingram angle with Laura Ingram. Uh, let's go to cut 13, get his take on what Nikki Haley should do. I don't think she has any shot in 2028, so I don't think that it's actually going to hurt her chances uh, to stick around uh, because they were so low anyway. Uh, look, it, Nikki Haley represents the past. She's a callback to, you know, the before time, the long ago. You know, really, in, in a way, I think that you know what she represents is you know, sort of the last-ditch act of a Republican Party that wants to be more corporatist, less populist, uh, and less in touch with its own voters. And I think that that's, unfortunately, uh, the person that you ended up with as the last fallback uh, in case of Donald Trump having the kind of legal uh, problems that you referenced. It's, It's something, though, that I think is increasingly unlikely. Yeah, it's just it's really amazing to me that um, there's a lot of people who are saying, look, uh, Nikki Haley has no shot in 28, but I don't think she has any shot in 24. If you can't win your home state, where else are you going to win? I think the writing was on the wall in Iowa when Joe Biden, or I'm sorry, when Donald Trump won 98 out of the 99 counties and only lost one by one vote to Nikki Haley. I think the writing was on the wall. Nikki Haley came in third in Iowa. Uh, She worked hard. She spent tons of money to try to do it but no ron desantis ron desantis i think actually did it right you know he fought hard he made the case hey 
Policy-wise, I'm very similar to Trump, but I don't come with the drama and the legal problems. Um, I've got a case to be made that the way we run Florida is the way that country should go. I thought Ron DeSantis um, did actually run a, a, a campaign because his voters were actually Trump voters. It's just the Trump voters said, no, we're going one more time with Trump. But I think the way that Governor Ron DeSantis exited the stage um, yeah, he fought against Donald Trump. Yeah, he said something. But of course, it's a competitive race. Of course, he's going to do that. But he didn't make it overtly personal. And I think Ron DeSantis, in retrospect, will be viewed as, you know what, a solid candidate, made a good case, young. He's the future of the Republican Party in many, many ways and will be the most viable candidate, I think, going into the 2028 presidential campaign because of how he exited the stage and what he did. Nikki Haley, coming up at noon Eastern time. Does she drop out of the race? Does she try to make the case? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Stay with us on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to, to your, your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Always love coming in with a little Fat Boy Slim music to kick things off. And uh, I'm Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian Kilmeade. Um, just also want to mention, I got a podcast. It's called Jason in the House. Jason in the House podcast. Just anywhere you watch podcasts or listen to podcasts, I should say, type in Jason in the House and you'll find it. Actually, the podcast that I have up right now is uh, a more in-depth conversation with Congressman Rob Bishop. Now, some of you may know Rob Bishop. Some of you may not know Rob Bishop. But Rob Bishop uh, retired from Congress recently, a few years ago. After serving 18 years, he was a congressman from Utah. That's how I know him so well. I was a congressman from Utah. He was a congressman from Utah. He was an educator for years and years before that. He served in the state legislature in Utah. He was actually the Speaker of the House um, in the state of Utah. Um, and he's an all-around good guy. Once you get past the initial gruffness of Rob Bishop, then you're going to love the guy. But if you don't get past that threshold, uh, look out. He is a, a fun, fun man, uh, very insightful, and uh, thrilled to have Congressman Rob Bishop joining us on the line. Uh, thank you. Gruff, huh? Yeah, gruff is a, a really good way to describe the initial meeting I had with you, yes. <laughs> I had... I, 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 yeah, it was gruff. Gruff is a really good word. Well, I'm, I'm sorry for that. No, you're not. You're not. You're just playing nice out here on radio. But, uh, listen, and I say that with a big smile on my face because, uh, Rob is one of my, my favorite people. And, uh, Rob Bishop has written a new book. And I want you to, if you are really fascinated about Congress and how it actually really works, you know, not the way those political scientists tell you that it works, the way somebody who is actually in Congress about how it actually works and how it should work, what the history of it is. How it, he's written this great book. It's called The Things I Learned in Congress They Never Taught in School. The Things I Learned in Congress They Never Taught in School by Representative Rob Bishop. Um, fascinating book. Um, Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee, and I helped uh, write a little bit of a blurb uh, there at the beginning of it, but... What, why, why did you take the time? Because this is a major effort that you put out to, to come up with this book. Why did you do it? 
That's a really good question that I don't have a, an actual answer to. I realized when I got to Congress that the stuff I had been teaching in my legislative units, back even in AP government classes in high school, were they didn't hit the mark. They were just not right. Um, so I, I wrote down the things that I had experienced in Congress that I wish I had had while I was still teaching school to the reality of what was going on. And I, I just felt compelled to do it. And so when I would be flying back from Washington to Utah and or from Utah to Washington, and, and you know that can be a very lonely four-hour flight, um, I always had the laptop there and I kept writing stuff down. I just felt compelled to do it so that I had those experiences. Um, and, and now my goal is to share them with other people, especially those who are teaching history or teaching government classes stuff that actually, I think, puts in perspective how Congress actually does operate. Um, yeah, one of the chapters that I, I saw, in here, you know, that you have in here is Chapter 10. It can't hurt to talk unless you're in Congress, which <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Um, it, it is one of the, the oddities that people think you go to Congress to pontificate. A lot of members of Congress think they go there to pontificate about the major issues of the day. But if you attend as a visitor, you'll find there's no one actually sitting there watching or listening. There may be two people doing, and, and they're good debates, but there's only two people doing that, which simply means that the way we roll votes, which means you all come together at a certain time period to make a whole bunch of votes, which is supposed to be an efficient way, means that there is no one to listen to what the arguments are being made before they vote, which means most people vote in a, in a lack of ignorance. Most, the idea that I think everyone has is that you listen to the debate and then you vote. We do it the exact opposite in Congress. You go vote and then you ask somebody, does anyone know what this does? Or you go yeah, to your it, staff and say, listen to the debate. It's, it's a procedure that we instituted supposedly for efficiency, but what it does is mean we don't really know what we are doing, and therefore you have to rely either on staff or specifically on leadership to help you do what you need to do. And that is not the best way of – that's not the way it was originally established. That's not the way it originally happened. There are, there are histories of those first years of Congress where congressmen would go there just to be entertained, and congressmen would specifically go into the chamber to listen to the debate so they would, they, they would know what the issue was, and often the debate changed their opinions. doesn't happen today. So there's so much criticism about the lack of, uh, you know, that Congress just isn't working. It doesn't happen. Now, the majorities are slim. People have gone to further to the right, further to the left. But as you look back on your time in Congress and you and you look at it now, what's and somebody says to you, "What's wrong with Congress?" What would you say? Um, there are a lot of structural things that are a problem with Congress, but I think the biggest issue right now is is how how closely divided Congress is numerically, which illustrates how closely divided the people are as well. In Congress, especially the House, more than the Senate, but especially the House. It is a team sport, and yet there are times when an individual member of the House has to be an individual to stand up for his or her district. But the key element is how you, how you balance those two things out. I know there are, there are some people who, I was, who are talking a great deal about how uh, the party needs to come together and we need to be unified and everything. But when I was back there as chairman of the committee 
those same voices on my committee were the ones that gave me the biggest problems in trying to get a, co a cohesive package done and out of the committee. It, it's a balancing act. And members of Congress need to know how to balance working for the better good of the country versus working for the better of your district. And if you're not being an individual for your district, you're only doing it for yourself because you think politically or philosophically you have all the answers, uh, you're basically a narcissist and shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, you're just trying to grow, grow your social media profile or something. We're talking with Congressman yeah. Rob Bishop. The things I learned in Congress, they never taught in school. Um, you know, one of the things that was always just fascinating to me, and I, you were really a leader. When I was there, you, you really helped lead this effort. Um, it, it, Congress has its tentacles in everything. I mean, try to think of. Try to think of an issue where the federal government isn't involved. It's really hard to do that. And yet I think our budget would get in line. Our uh, product that came out of Congress would be better, not only if the process was better on how we actually do appropriations, but if we just simply as a people and as a Congress said, no, that's not what the federal government's supposed to be doing. you got a lot of examples of that, but share, share some of your thoughts on that with, uh, with the audience here. It, it is essential for people to understand when the founders wrote the Constitution, I think the greatest uh, patriot was, was Sir Isaac Newton, even though he never lived over here and he died 50, a half century before um, the revolution started. But he was the one, as the physicist that came up for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The founders believed that. Founders believed that you couldn't write a law to make everyone be good, but you could structure government so that there would be one group would offset another group so no one group or one person or cabal would have too much power. That's the important area. We in Congress have to realize that, that one of the reasons that you did that was so there could be a vertical separation of power between the states and the national government. They would balance each other off, not dominate, but balance each other. And that meant that everyone should have a sphere of action. I think it was James Wilson who said the Congress, the, the system of government where you have two masters, a state and a nation, can work if we function like the solar system where everyone has our plane, our source, our area of expertise, our area of work, and we don't interfere with the others. But if we function like a bunch of, of comets that fly through the planetary system, we will leave chaos in the wake. That's what Congress has done. The more it tries to do what could better be done by local government and better be done by states. Congress needs to realize there are things we can do well, and if we stick to that, we will do well. We will also spend less if we stick to that. And people will have the ability of choosing what kind of government. I'm sorry, I'm rambling here. Just stop, cut me, cut me off when you don't want, when you want to. There are some people that do want a big and fulsome government to do lots of things for them. And if they're willing to pay for that, fine, let them do that. There are others that want individual freedom and liberty and personal choices. Let them do that. If you if you trust in federalism, if a state wants to, to tax its people to do everything and people are happy with that, give them that choice and opportunity. But in other people that don't want that approach, give them that opportunity. That only happens in the concept of federalism where you allow states to make real choices. Sometimes those choices would be bad, but that's okay. That's, that is the important part. People yeah. need to have choices. Yeah, that's why we have California. They can make really bad decisions. And they have a really bad, really bad state that's poorly performing, and people are moving out in droves. That's called California. So, 
Um, it, okay, so last question. If you could wave your magic wand and make one change, is that the change you would make? Or what would be the one change you'd make in Congress? I, okay, there's so many. I think Congress needs to, first of all, force people by the way they structure their arts. And, and if you remember Eric Cantor, when he was majority leader, he tried to make all sorts of reforms to the way we do things so it would be a more family-friendly Congress. Structure it so people would actually be forced to be there and listen and, and talk to one another, that we would have deadlines of when we actually had to get things done. And when it comes especially to the budgeting, we don't have a process. We, we, what do we have, 12 separate budgets people vote on? Yeah. There is no way to prioritize between those budgets. You can do it within a budget. But if you think we're spending too much money on, like, defense and need to spend more on parks, there's no way of moving that money from one silo to the other because of the way we structure things. That is not an efficient way of prioritizing what is really important in government. Well, one of the things I would do, I would get rid of, I would abolish the appropriations uh, committee. I'd just get rid of them. Make the appropriators the authorizing committee. So when you were the chairman of natural resources, you should also hold the purse strings. And that would get people's attention. That would get the administration moving in the right direction. There's nothing more infuriating than funding programs that weren't authorized by Congress. And it happens in mass. It happens in mass. And it does. And that's the way originally it was at one time, up until about the 1920s. The appropriations process was done by the individual committees. If you passed the law, you also had to pass the appropriations that went along with it. Amen, and there was brother. some kind of control. And the other thing we need to get rid of is, is, is waiving all points of orders against appropriations bills, which means if a program has not been reauthorized by Congress and it's supposed to, appropriations can just fund it, whether it's, whether it's been reviewed by Congress or not. We need to to start reviewing more of these programs and reauthorizing them, not just letting them go on eternally because they were always there. Well, you've got we've got a few more hours of discussion on how to fix Congress, but what I can tell people right now is uh, go on Amazon, go wherever you buy books, Representative Rob Bishop, easy to spell and remember. The things I learned in Congress, they never taught in school. It's a great book. Thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Good luck with the book. And uh, see, you're not so gruff. I just said at the beginning, you're actually a nice guy. One of the good guys to serve in Congress, an honor to serve with you. And thanks again for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thank you for having me. It's good to talk to you again. All right. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. Many thanks to Brian Kilmeade, one of the hardest working guys in all of, I mean, it's just a hardest working guy, period. He's amazing what he does. And every once in a while, there's an opportunity to fill in for him. And the, uh, the fact that he'd uh, tap me on the shoulder to do it, I'm really honored that I would do that. He's got a great staff uh, behind him and supporting him. It makes this uh, somewhat easy, but... I really thank them for, for being able to host uh, these these few hours. As we kind of wrap up the show here, um, I want to draw note to what's going on uh, here at noon Eastern time. It's, uh, Fox News is reporting, you know, Haley to make a campaign announcement. Is she dropping out? 
Is she dropping out? That's the question. Uh, she's also um, scheduled to be later on at Fox News on, on 3 o'clock with Martha McCallum on the story, 3 p.m. Eastern. But let's listen to cut nine. This is Haley, uh, Nikki Haley last night. But I'll promise you this. I am in this fight. I will take the bruises. I will take the cuts. This is going to be messy. And I'll take the hurt. Because I believe nothing in good comes easy. Sometimes we have to feel the pain to appreciate the blessing. So you say that yesterday and today you're having a campaign announcement at noon. I don't know what that campaign announcement is. Maybe she's got an endorsement somewhere. I I don't know. But uh, maybe she's dropping out. We'll find out uh, really soon. I think the other question is, what's Joe Biden going to do? Joe Biden going to drop out? Um, he's got a lot of people there on the left side of the aisle, including Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist, saying, um, what should Biden do? Cut 19. To say this is a media invention, that people are worried about Biden's age because the media keeps telling them to be worried about Biden's age. If you've really convinced yourself of that in your heart of hearts, I almost don't know what to tell you. In poll after poll, 70 to 80 percent of voters are worried about his age. This is not a thing people need the media to see. I think Biden, as painful as this is, should find his way to stepping down as a hero. And then I think Democrats should meet in August at the convention to do what political parties have done at conventions so many times before. Organize victory. Yeah, I think it's increasingly difficult for Joe Biden to... um make the case that he has got the vibrant skill set to drive America forward for four more years. Now, um, I don't uh, agree necessarily that he would step down as a hero, but I think a lot of people on the left would do that, uh, would would put try to put him up as a hero. That would be a stretch, to say the least. I mean, I, what he's done to America, how he's done it, the selection of Kamala Harris. Oh, my goodness, if she's up next. I mean, it begs the question, who would fill in that spot? And I, I just so untenable. But, you know, Joe Biden keeps making the case that he's going to do it. He's running around the country. Today he's on his way to uh, California to raise more money. Uh, but certainly his ability to take the fight to Donald Trump It's got to be more for the Democrats than to just go scorched earth and say, oh, Donald Trump is a threat to democracy. At the same time, your party and your efforts are to take Donald Trump off the ballot. That doesn't seem like a very Democratic thing to do. Um, You know, they keep talking about, oh, the threat to democracy and he's going to create all these wars. Well, you know what? Wars have happened under Joe Biden. They didn't happen under Donald Trump. Oh, Joe Biden. Donald Trump will destroy the economy. The economy was better under Donald Trump than Joe Biden. So every time you kind of hear these arguments from the left, you just kind of smile and laugh and say, hey, we had four years of experience with Donald Trump, and it was really good. So all eyes, I think, coming up here in the next few minutes, Nikki Haley, does she drop out of the race? I think she should have dropped out a while ago. That's my own personal take, but we'll see what happens in a few minutes. I'm Jason Chaffetz, filling in for Brian Kilmeade. Been an honor to do so. Thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful, safe, and prosperous day.
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.